From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rock and Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you to always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe, stigma and judgment free zone. Recovery Talks right now. Everybody, welcome to another edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. Today's special guest is me, Mark Lee Shannon. I'm your host. Many people have asked me, Mark, what's your story? You know, and and how did you get involved in this? And why did you start doing this? And I thought I'd sit down in my little home studio at my little desk in my home in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, and just tell you a little bit about what my story is and uh, see if I can put it together. I thought about making some notes and having everything neatly organized and stuff, but I decided that I would just do it extemporaneously because uh, I feel more comfortable that way and uh, it comes off, I think, a little bit better and less scripted. So how did it happen that my life got off the road? How did it happen that I ended up into the weeds off the main highway, onto the dirt road of addiction and recovery. Well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, you know, rubber capital, to an, into a family that uh, was probably um, not like most of my neighbors. Uh, and I think that covers a broad swath of, uh, of issues. Um, my parents, uh, did the best they could, as I think most of us did in middle-class USA growing up in the 60s and the 70s, uh, but they ended up making a mistake by being married to each other. And uh, I know they tried their best to do that, but unfortunately, my family's a victim of, of divorce. And there's three things I remember about growing up, and that was that my parents didn't get along. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of conflict. My two sisters did not like each other, and my brother... Um, was not the most kind person to me. I'm not going to go too deeply into that story because that's uh, that's kind of personal and private family stuff, and I don't want to go there. But I do remember, I can tell you one thing that I think was a big part of my developmental youth and, and making decisions on who I was eventually and who I was going to be. Um, when my parents finally decided to become divorced and our family was going to be divorced, and I do say family divorce because I don't think parents just get divorced. I think it's, I think divorce is a family affair. And they sat us down, my brother and I, and they uh, they told us we were getting a divorce. They asked us to pick who we wanted to live with. I think I was 11 at the time, uh, maybe almost 12. I remember it was wintertime in January, I think, if I remember correctly. And then they said to me, because this had come out in our family recently with my brother finding out that he had a different father, they said, uh, we never told you, but, uh, you know, your two sisters and your brother had a different father. And uh, um, the way I took that at that time was really pretty monumental to the way I became as a human being. That was a personal choice, the way I reacted to it. But I did feel at that point in time that I couldn't trust anyone. More than that, the result of that finding out that I had been in a blended family and not knowing it 
was I, I really felt that I, I didn't want to ask anyone for help. I felt I had been sort of misled and that my story was going to be always one of, I'll take care of it myself. I will do it on my own. And so therefore, I did not ask for help. And that was probably early on one of the pre-qualifications for eventually becoming an addict and an alcoholic. I was not able to say the three magic words that everyone that ends up in recovery must eventually utter from their trap. And that is, please help me. I wouldn't say them, would not say those words. So growing up, I was always acutely aware of people who needed help. And I always felt very empathically connected to them. But I would not ask for it for myself. And so, um, you know, I chose to live with my father. And, uh, you know, at the time, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, we were all, you know, pretty much, you know, bachelors, three musketeers, I think we called each other. But really, and eventually, my, my dad was not able to manage the situation very well. He, you know, was having some of his own personal issues, as did my brother. And, you know, we really became more of a a group of friends than really of traditional parent and child relationships. I went to Catholic schools, uh, got a good education, and uh, I don't really have, you know, a lot of resentments about that. I mean, there were good people and there were people that were not kind in those situations, just like life. Eventually, I ended up going to a Catholic high school. Growing up, there were two things that I, I really felt were, you know, things I could do well and uh, or wanted to do well. And one of them was sports. The other one was music. And uh, early on, you know, I'm making the teams and being on a basketball team or, or heading out to the park by myself with a seven iron and practicing golf. Those are the things I did. And I, I felt a sense of community by being part of teams. I felt like I belonged. And uh, the other thing that I did that I really, you know, the light struck me in my life was that, you know, I, I asked for and was able to be given a guitar early on in my life. That guitar was everything to me, and I became a student of practicing it alone, even though I didn't have much skills. Uh, I learned, and I, I wanted to hang out with, you know, guys that could play, and, and, and I was really what I call was, was in search of the badasses. And, uh, you know, that skill of finding people around me that would eventually become, you know, my mentors, Somebody that was really good at, at something that, you know, they could play. They had the Les Pauls and they had the gigs and they had the Fender amps and they had basements to practice and they could play tunes. And all of that stuff was what I wanted. I wanted that stuff. So searching out the badasses was a skill that I, I, uh, I really would eventually come to really suit me well when I came into recovery. In high school, I was entered in and and was able to be given uh, the honor of finishing in a National Scholastic Writing Awards contest for original song. So I knew that that there was something there. And, uh, you know, this was a time when in Ohio, uh, there wasn't much happening around here. You know, as far as my using went, you know, there wasn't that much going on with me at that time. I did get drunk for one time with my uh, my cousin, and it was during one of those great Ohio uh, 
snowstorms. And, uh, you know, we had found my dad's Cuddy Sark. And I remember there was three things I remember about that first drink. And that was what it tastes like going down, what it tastes like coming up, and the smell of a stinky toilet. And that was my first recollection. I didn't like drinking. I, I didn't like the buzz. Now, I, I did try other things and other substances. You know, I was introduced to, to marijuana in between the summer of uh, eighth and ninth grade. And that blew my mind, you know, because uh, all of a sudden there was a tribe of people that they got high and it was all quiet and hush-hush and I felt like I belonged. So I was starting to turn from being into athletics to really being into music and hanging around with guys that drove around in vans with carpet on them and, you know, in great big captain seats and, you know, eight tracks or whatever and listening to Pink Floyd and uh, cruising through the parkway. And uh, that's what I did. I remember that, um, you know, I had so much anxiety and so much, um, you know, fear at those times because I was always afraid I wasn't good enough. I was always afraid that I was going to mess up. I constantly was worried about that growing up and in school. I missed a great deal of school because I had so much fear. I remember that the, uh, the marijuana sort of made me feel less fear. So maybe it acted as a mild uh, just relief from the anxiety. I think it certainly did. It was counterproductive, but on the other level, it was procreative, and I started writing songs, and I liked that. I didn't drink too much in high school, but what I remember about drinking in high school is that if I did drink, I got drunk, and it seemed like there were other people that could drink something and not be as bad as me, but right away, I knew that I drank differently than other people. When I was in a senior in high school, I got some promise from a guy at a local label and uh, went in to do some recording and uh, nothing came of it. But I knew that, you know, where I wanted to be was somewhere else, somewhere else. I was introduced to other substances on an on a opportunity to go to Florida and record at a really cool studio down there, Criteria Sound, and that's where cocaine was introduced to me, among other things that happened on that trip. And I just thought, man, I want to get out of Ohio and get going, and I was 19 years old. By this time, I had played in a bunch of bands, and, you know, really using and, and, and smoking or whatever was never an issue because I took everything so seriously, I would never do it when I was doing it, you know, never playing and, and using. When I got to California and, and started school out there, you know what I mean, I was so poor. I mean, I lived on, you know, just, uh, you know, a slice of pizza a day and, and, you know, whatever we could find. But, you know, more more things started coming my way. And I, I again, I tell people this frequently, that my using really was about three stages. This is fun was the first stage. The second stage was, wait a minute, what just happened? consequences started showing up, you know, like uh, maybe uh, uh, not being able to remember exactly what happened the night before, being told stories, or, uh, you know, what happened to my money, or, you know, did we get stopped by the popo? What happened, you know? And finally, and ultimately, where I'll get to with this story is what happened, you know, in the end, which was me down on my knees with the devil's breath saying, please help me, finally being able to utter those words.
In California, I was introduced, as I said, to a number of different things. I had, you know, a pretty good amount of success in the studio business and was making records and was doing all that stuff. But, you know, the introduction of cocaine into my life really changed things. The very first time I ever felt out of control that I could not stop doing what I wanted to do was one night when I had uh, snuck into a friend of mine's house because he was out of town and uh, and I stole his cocaine and uh, I just couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. And that was the first moment where I felt like, man, I, I'm out of control here. I'm really out of control. My California years, my cool years, in my that started out to be my cool years, ended up to be not so good. And I, I left there uh, with a brand new wife and a little baby. And I was coming back home to Ohio to hopefully go into a business with my father that, of course, didn't work out. And when I got back, I was just this guy who said he had done all these things out there, said he had played on all these records. And I ended up working at a small music store and my self-esteem took a big hit because of the nature of being able to, you know, being the provider for my child and my wife. I had to work a lot of hours at the store and I was doing a lot of one-nighters as a musician. And you can do the math from here. I was doing a lot of drinking at that point in time. That's when the drinking started happening, to be able to get through the set and get through the tired part. All of these things that happened to me are not why I'm an alcoholic. All of these things that happened to me were direct results of my behavior and, and my my sense of what was underneath the manhole cover that would eventually have to be cured and taken care of, you know. So things progressed and uh, I got a really good job and, uh, you know, out of that music store and worked for a big company in Stowe, Ohio and began a corporate career that really took off. And I was very, very fortunate to work for that company for many, many, many years. And of course, in that in that environment, you know, drinking was be the way for, was the social lubricant, and so I started finding myself, you know, drinking more. All the while, knowing that I just didn't drink like everybody else. I mean, I would be the guy if I'm out with clients to go back to leave a tip and then end up drinking everybody's drinks at the table. So things were getting out of control. It was progressing, you know, things were progressing, you know, and I I really do subscribe to the theory that the issue of addiction and the issue of, you know, um, my problem with alcoholism and addiction is a medical problem first. It is, it is a disease. And I, I say that because what I've learned is that, you know, um, most of the people in the medical community look at the disease of addiction in the same way they look at any disease, whether it's cancer or diabetes or if it's, you know, MS, you know, uh, pretty much the tenets of a disease are, are pretty consistent from what I understand. And that is, you know, it's it's chronic, right? So it uh, it's not going to go away. If you don't stop, if you, go, if you don't go into a period of abstinence, you will never, ever, ever get rid of it. Number two, it's progressive, you know. <laughs> My disease was getting worse as time went on. Just like in the same way that if, you know, if I'm a diabetic or if I have cancer and I don't treat it, you know what I mean? It's not going to improve, you know? So the progressive nature of it, you know, and eventually, you know, eventually it was uh, going to lead me down the path where it was going to kill me like any disease would.
So in, this, in the community of people who, who are alcoholics and addicts, you know, we, uh, we go through many, many different things. But one of the things I am involved in is a 12-step program. And uh, the general wisdom there is that we must qualify ourselves. You know what I mean? We must, uh, when we tell our story, we must tell you. And I, and I will say, I'm not going to go on and on and on because I don't like those guys that, you know, would like to tell you, you know, and then I had this happened, and then this happened, and then, and then, and then. I don't want to be an and-then guy, but I will tell you a couple things that are really pivotal, clarifying moments, because, you know, for all of us, we do have moments of clarity, moments of clarity. So my moments of clarity highlights that I can think of right now while I'm talking about this is, A, being in a foreign country, traveling as an executive, and waking up, coming out of a blackout, walking down the hallway of a hotel, not knowing where my hotel room is, and finding myself in my boxer shorts, lost and having pissed myself. That certainly will be a moment of clarity. Crashing my company car, knowing that I had to go back the next morning and, uh, and explain it, know up to it, or being that dad that was drunk in front of his kids. and. Uh, you know, those are moments that I, I think that stick out to me. You know, I was never a bad father, I was never was a good provider. But when my disease started taking over, it be, it came first. There was no doubt about it. So, so getting around to the finishing up on what happened, you know, um, you know, I found myself unfortunately in the same circumstances that I had grown up in, and uh, and that was that my family was becoming divorced and my marriage was falling apart. And this was uh, a period right before, in the corporate world, right before the banking crisis. And uh, so I had a, a couple things happening. My brother passed in a house fire, which was tragic. My divorce, my family fell apart. And then in the corporate world, um, then, you know, the banking crisis happened. And uh, if you were around for that period, you know that, that there was nothing that guys like me who wore the fancy suits could do to save our companies. It was just disaster. So I started drinking a lot. And that's where the day drinking began. You know, that's where the, you know, the drinking happened that I couldn't stop. People say to me, Mark, you know, how did you know you had a drinking problem? And I always say, really, it was two things. You know, and uh, for me, eventually where I got after all the, 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 the terrible stuff I've been through, the day drinking and being sick with the quote unquote flu, I can look back now and see that there was two main things that were really the problem for me. And that was, uh, I would tell myself I was not going to drink and I could not, not drink. I could not, not drink. And the other one was, which is always regarded as the big red flag in our community of alcoholics and addicts, is once I started using, I couldn't stop. And no matter what I had, or I would drink it all, and uh, the night would end up the way the night would end up. And by this time, my family being divorced, it was all about, uh, you know, being in, you know, this big house I had and, and, you know, the kids would be gone week on, week off. And I would drink myself to sleep every night. By this time, I'd also developed a great sense of fear of being discovered with my problem. And I had asked for and been given by my physician sleeping aids. And um, those things were, uh, were pretty dangerous to me. Ambien, Lunesta. My, at this point in time, 
my drug dealer became my physician. And I asked for things, you know, I uh, feel sad. Hey, here's a pill. You know, I feel anxiety. Hey, here's a pill. Hey, I need to take care of this. Hey, here's a pill. I don't blame Western doctors for this because that's what they're taught in medical school, but I abused it. I'll tell you what, let's take a little quick musical break and uh, and then uh, I'll be right back with uh, the finish and, the, and the, the good part of this story. This is the back door to my heart Oh, but don't you tell the soul That I've given you the keys To these rooms inside of me Don't you let nobody know This is the color of my pain Dusty blue and midnight rain I might be asking for too Somehow with your touch You can make these colors fade Oh, the end of the world Just around the corner Knocking at my door All begun by morning If you could only step inside me Take a Okay, so that was a song off my 2018 release called Walk This Road, which has got a lot of songs on it about recovery. Okay, so we're going back in time. It's June of 2014, and by this time, I'm a mess. I am a mess. And uh, I uh, finally decided that uh, even though that I had tried many times to quit, 
but I just couldn't do it. I had been involved in a group recovery program, a 12-step program. I had gotten counseling. I had tried and failed over and over again, and I just couldn't do it. So I asked a friend to take me to... Uh, uh, actually, what happened was that she came over and sat me up in bed one day and said, look, if, if you, if you want to live... I'll take you to rehab, but if you want to continue to kill yourself, you know, I'm leaving. And, you know, I asked her to take me, and she did take me to rehab. And uh, it was really my break to be able to be admitted in that there was a bed available at St. Thomas Hospital where I was born, which was the home of AA. You know what I mean? The home of the new, of the program of the first modern recovery, you know. And so I went in uh, in June 2nd, 2014. It was there that I had a spiritual moment, which I'm not going to discuss at this point, but I had a, an awakening of sorts that I knew that uh, I couldn't do this on my own and I needed to get help and that more than anything, I finally admitted to myself that I had a medical problem first, that I was unable to stop this and that I needed to get help first and foremost to take care of my medical, my medical body. After that, I was hooked up with a tough old bird uh, named Patty that uh, worked for Edwin Shaw, and she began to work on you know my recovery. And my recovery began with admitting that number one, I had a bunch of things I had to get out from underneath the manhole cover. So chemical dependency counseling, psychological counseling were of important part. But first and foremost, I had to understand that I had a medical problem that I had to enter in a prolonged and consistent, uninterrupted period of abstinence, sobriety. That was the only way my brain was going to heal, or I just couldn't do it. I could not do it. So I, I did the IOP, and I did all the things that were important, and I, I, I had some relapses after that, but they were different kinds of relapses. I didn't go off uh, the deep end, and I, every time I went back to Patty and I told her, look, this is what happened, and we would talk about it. And she really hipped me to the idea of post-acute withdrawal. And if you don't know what post-acute withdrawal is, look it up. It's this, basically what happens is your brain is just in a very bad position. It needs to be healed. And uh, if, you, uh, if you continue to use, it won't work. And your brain is not functioning the way it needs to function. You know, you're, you've You've basically changed it fundamentally. Another person I would recommend that really does a very good job of understanding the neuroscience of addiction is Dr. Nicole Labor. I would look up her work. She's amazing, just amazing. So it's 2014. I've gone through a bunch of different relapses. I'm in a program of recovery. I'm working, working, working. My life is changing. And people say to me, well, Mark, what did you have to change? And I say, it was only one thing, everything. Everything in my life had to change. Now, I didn't, wasn't able to get to it right away, but I, I did eventually have to move out of that, that house that I lived in. I had to get out of the work that I was doing at the time in the corporate world. It no longer suited me and no longer really supported me emotionally. I had to get into something meaningful. All this time, I had been an artist. I had been writing songs. I had been playing in bands. I had been doing this, but it wasn't my primary. It was where my heart was, and I was living away from home, so to speak. So at that point in time, I started the long, slow climb into recovery. And you know what? One week turned into one month, turned into six months. And then I finally had a year. And when I had a year, I just remember that it was just the greatest feeling of all. 
And then, of course, after having a year, I was able to qualify to be able to take the training and be able to work in the detox ward at St. Thomas Hospital on Monday nights. And up until the pandemic, I have been doing that consistently, you know. So people want to know, you know, how did you do it? How did you do it? You know, and A, you know, total and complete abstinence is the only way to recover. You cannot partake part-time. You cannot try the marijuana therapy. You cannot try this. For me, I had to do 100% abstinence, and that's what worked to me. Number two, I had to join a tribe of like-minded people just as much as when I was a young guitar player, right? And I wanted to hang out with the badasses that had the Les Pauls and the Telecasters and the Fender Amps and could play in bands and be three and do songs and could play this and rehearsed and played gigs just as much as I had to in those days. Find the badasses. In sobriety, I had to find the badasses. I had to find the people that had what I wanted and hang out with them and learn from them. This was This was the most important thing. And then finally, the third most important step is that once I had some extended sobriety, I had to reinforce that consistently by sharing that message with others. I had to really find a way to help other human beings. And through that, I had a daily reprieve. I could find a way to get out of my head and to help other human beings. Now, it wasn't fast. It took time. And my life did not get well right away. It took time. I had a whole world of a jackpot that I had to get myself out of. But slowly and surely, with the help of many other people, a lot of sober badasses, I have arrived at the life I have today. So what's that like? Like, listen, man, I'm talking to you on a podcast, sober, almost heading towards six years. You know, this would have been my wildest dream. I write a monthly column called Sober Chronicles for a local arts and community magazine called The Devil Strip. I put out a record in 2018 of songs about myself and recovery, and and it's been very well received in the area. You know, I have real friends I can call and say, man, talk to me for a minute. Just talk to me. And I can sort out this still, it's times, confused, alcoholic brain, you know, that doesn't get things right when it's all about me and I'm sitting around in a poopy diaper and I'm trying to figure out what is this? What is this? What is this? You know what I mean? I can help. I've got real friends to turn to. Does life show up? Yes, it does. Three in the morning, lights flashing, rain outside, banging on the door, you know, dog barking, you know, yes, life shows up. But here's what's different about my life today is I have a toolbox to go to work on my life. I can pull out a tool. I can call somebody. I can go to a gathering. You know what I mean? I can read something. I can talk about what I'm feeling now and get it out of me. I can Finally, and once and for all, say that I've learned how to take the lid off the manhole cover and air out all the things that were in there all these years, you know. And I'll tell you what, it's only a daily reprieve I have, you know what I mean? And that is it. That's all there is. But my life now is really, if you'd have told that guy, and I ask this question often on this podcast, I say, tell me what you would tell the person who used to use. So I'm going to say this to myself right now. What would I tell the Mark Lee Shannon about his life now? I would tell him, you cannot believe how wonderful it'll be. It's going to be beyond your wildest dreams. 
the things that you could not have even imagined that you would be doing, you are going to be doing. And it only happens one day at a time. One day. One airtight, 24-hour compartment. So that's it. That's my story. And you know what? I want to thank you for hanging with me and listening to this. You know, I'm sure I left out a bunch of cool stuff in there. And I'm sure I'll do more of these, you know, Mark Lee stories, Mark Lee things, maybe not so 30 minutes. But you know what? I want to say thanks to everybody for hanging with us for this edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. And if you do, stay tuned to Rock and Recovery for more episodes with more guests as we share our journey from the darkness to the light. And until then, everybody, stay standing, stay sober and steady on. Raising awareness, removing stigma, and offering hope. Hi, I'm Garrett Hart for Rock and Recovery. It's the nightly radio show that offers upbeat rock songs and inspirational messages for people in recovery from addiction, trauma, and mental health disruptions. It's for families and friends as well. Rock and Recovery is broadcast every night, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern at 91.3 FM in Akron, Ohio, and at 90.7 FM in Youngstown, Ohio. The show can be heard at thesummit.fm. You can also listen to Rock and Recovery on our 24-7 radio channel streaming at rockandrecovery.com. We've got a free app for your phone so you can listen anytime, anywhere. Everyone needs a little R&R. Rock and recovery. Recovery rocks.